Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Today, we are going to continue our series on looking at the creation ordinances, and the ordinance we're going to be looking at today is the ordinance of marriage and procreation. And I know that in our previous episode, we discussed male and female, that God established sex and gender, and we want to look now a little bit further at that, at the unique creation of man and woman. Now, in our local church, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it in six literal 24-hour days. And I recognize that that is probably the minority view even amongst evangelical Christians. Many Christians uh, adopt some type of theistic evolution perspective or maybe a day-age theory or I think there's a lot who even hold to the gap theory. We, however, believe in a direct creation. And in this direct creation, he spoke all that is present in creation into existence. And he did it in a matter of six days. Now, why is it important to understand this? I believe it's important to hold to a literal six-day creation because it provides a framework for how to understand the ordinances. For example, if, if it was theistic evolution, there would have been a lot of procreating happening prior to the ordinance given to Adam and Eve about marriage. And that doesn't seem to be the case at all. In fact, what seems to happen, if you're going to look at the chronology of day six, which is the day that God created Adam and Eve, in looking at the chronology of that day, it appears that Adam was created in the morning and the other mammals were also created in the morning. And sometime during that morning, okay, so let's just say the animals were created at 6 a.m., Adam is created at 7 a.m. out of the dust of the ground. And then at 8 a.m., God brings all the animals to Adam to name them. And he goes about the process of naming them. And guess what? He finds that there is not another creature who is similar to him. And this is what happens. Um, This is what we find in Genesis chapter 18. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. That's verse 19 of Genesis 2. And in this verse, we learn that God created Adam, then all these creatures, and God brought them to him. So Adam had a task to do. He had work to do in the garden. In verse 20, he gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. 
but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now, the, the interesting thing is the, the Hebrew mind does not work chronologically. It works thematically. And so you'll notice that this section started out with God's declaration that there was not a helper suitable to Adam. And then we find out what led to that declaration by God, that Adam spent the morning naming all the creatures. He named the cattle. He named the birds of the sky. He named the beasts of the field. But there was not found a helper suitable for Adam. And then, then we see that God, in verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, that is Adam, and he slept, and God took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at this place. If we do not understand creation, the creation of Adam and Eve, and the creation of really the entire universe as being something that occurred in six literal 24-hour days, then the content of this story in some ways becomes nonsensical. Now, I know there are people out there who probably say, oh, here's an explanation for it, and there's an explanation for it. But really, it, it doesn't make sense if theistic evolution or even if the gap theory is how God created the world, why, why would Adam go through this process of naming all the creatures on one day and then find out that, oh, guess what? There's not another creature that's like me. Then God has to put him to sleep, and God creates Eve from his rib, and then he wakes Adam up and brings Eve to Adam. This, this creation account becomes far less sensible if you read into it gap theory, day-age theory, theistic evolution. It's just not true. And so the presupposition that we are taking, which I believe is a biblical presupposition, is that God has the power to create, and he created all that we see in six literal 24-hour days. And it's very important to understand that because these creation ordinances don't really make sense if a lot of time passed between the creation of man, the creation of the animal kingdom, the creation of the heavens and the earth, and then God giving these ordinances. That wouldn't make sense for hundreds, thousands, millions of years to transpire. And then all of a sudden God speaks out and he's like, okay, now, now here's an ordinance for you that's going to govern your life. No, that doesn't make sense. So we believe and we hold to the biblical truth that has historically been recognized, mind you. The biblical truth that has historically been recognized is that God created in six literal days. It is only in the last 150 to 200 years that men have been like, nah, no, I don't, I don't think so. We're going to find some other solution. No. What has historically been acknowledged by the church is that God created in six literal days, and that provides a framework for God's ordinances to make sense. Okay? So we have this creation of man and woman here on day six that is totally unique from all of the other created beings that God has made. 
God spends much more time talking about the creation of man and woman than he spends talking about the creation of literally everything else. I mean, he devotes more time to talking about Adam and Eve and their creation and what he wants them to do than he spends talking about the heavens, the moon and the stars, or the sun, or, you know, even the angels. We don't even find out that the angels were created. I believe they were created on day one, but we don't even find out about that until we read the book of Job. And Job chapter 38 describes how the sons of God sang for joy when God hung the heavens, hung the stars in the heavens, and created the foundations of the world. So the angels, which are arguably more powerful creatures than human beings, get zero time in Genesis chapter 1. But the primary focus of Genesis chapter 1 is on mankind. And that's important because man is made in the image of God. And that's the reason why God spends so much time talking about man's creation, because we, we are made in his image, and we are like the ultimate showcase of the creation. So as we look at the doctrines, or the ordinance, I should say, of marriage and procreation, we need to understand that mankind, male and female together, were uniquely created in God's image. This is what God writes. This is what God declares, I should say, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when he says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So in these verses, we have a description of what God desired to do. And what God has a desire to do, he then accomplishes by creating man in his image. And there's a purpose for this, okay? In Genesis 1.26 and in 1.28, the purpose is that mankind would rule over all of creation. That means he would exercise dominion. And that is a separate creation ordinance. And we're going to talk about that in future weeks. But another reason that God created male and female, that he created mankind, was that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is what we call procreation. Mankind would procreate. They would fill the earth. And as I already mentioned or already looked at, Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 through 24 describe the unique creation of male and female. Now, if we were going to put Genesis chapter 2 into a chronological order, it would logically fit around the statements found in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. Let me read that to you. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Okay, right there. You can fit in the creation of Adam, Genesis 2. And then, at the end of chapter 1, verse 27, it says, male and female, he created them. There you have the second half of Genesis chapter 2, where God took the rib from Adam and made that into Eve. 
So Genesis chapter 2 is kind of like a, a close-up view of day 6 of creation. Make sure that you get that straight in your understanding. I think a lot of people are confused about Genesis 2. Like, I thought we already went through the creation narrative. What's going on here in Genesis chapter 2? But it makes a lot of sense when you understand that Genesis chapter 2, really verses 4 through 25, are all describing day 6 of creation. They are the events of day 6 of creation. Now, what do these things help us to understand? These, these statements in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 communicate the special way that God designed male and female to exist together within his creation. That's why God takes so much time describing the creation of mankind. Not only is mankind the highlight of God's creation, not only is mankind the highlight of God's creation, but it is, or we are, I should say, we as human beings, as mankind, we have a specific purpose to fulfill within the creation. And not that animals don't serve a purpose, not that birds or reptiles or creeping things, they, don't, they, they do serve purposes. We have a special, specific task to fulfill. And I think it's, in, it's incumbent upon us to understand what that task is and then to begin fulfilling that task. All right, so before we even look at the ordinance of marriage and procreation, we need to understand that God created us in a special way to accomplish his plans and his purposes. Now, one of the reasons why marriage stands at the very beginning of the scriptures has to do with the fact that once male and female are created, they now have free reign to procreate. And without marriage being established, Adam and Eve would have begun procreating. And, and I, I know this next thought is going to be a little bit strange for us, but if marriage had not been established, there would have been no limits on who Adam procreated with. No limits on who Eve procreated with. Now, the answer to the age-old question, where did Cain get his wife? Or where did Abel get his wife? Or where did any of Adam and Eve's children get their wives? The answer is, they married their siblings. And this was okay at that time because the genetic gene pool, our DNA, had not been mutated by generation and generation and generations of sin. Presently, the gene pool has been manipulated and is tainted. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I don't know the right, correct word for it. But the gene pool has been depleted. That's, that's probably a better way to put it. Because of sin, and if you were to marry your sister or your brother and have offspring, there would be genetic defects. But at the beginning, it wasn't so because Adam and Eve were sinless at the beginning. And even when they did sin, they hadn't, you know, hadn't procreated yet. So there weren't any generations of people 
to basically have those mutations begin affecting the offspring. So without marriage, it would have been possible, and this sounds really strange to our ears, without marriage, without that limitation, without that ordinance of marriage, remember ordinances set boundaries, but they also allow you freedom within the boundary, Adam would have been able to procreate with Eve and produce a daughter. And he, in theory, would have been able to procreate with his daughter and maybe even other women as more and more people procreated. And is that what God really wanted? Is, is that how God wanted to fill the earth? Now, I know that this sounds strange to our ears. We, we don't want to like have the mental imagery of Adam procreating with one of his offspring. We don't want to have that imagery. But that would have been possible if God had not established the ordinance of marriage. You see, he had already given the ordinance to procreate, be fruitful and multiply. This is the purpose of mankind, one of the purposes of mankind, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And without a limit on who you can be fruitful with, without a limit on who you can procreate with, Adam could have procreated with any woman that he wanted to. And of course, at the time, it would have been his daughters, perhaps even his granddaughters. But God did not want to establish that. God did not want to establish what we consider perversion, what God also considers perversion, he did not want to establish that. And so he established something else. And so marriage, marriage is an ordinance that God established. And one of the reasons that he established it was to limit who you can procreate with. Doesn't that make sense? Of course it does. Because if without the boundaries of the marital bond without that union you could procreate with any other human being and you could say hey i am fulfilling god's command to be fruitful and multiply well god is obviously much wiser than we are obviously much more intelligent than we are and so he established boundaries for how men and women or male and female excuse me would relate to one another to fulfill the command to populate the earth. And the boundary is marriage. And this ordinance applies to all of mankind, whether you are believers or not. Now, why might that, why might that apply to all mankind? I believe it applies to all mankind, whether somebody is a believer or not, because God has always upheld marriage. God has always valued marriage. Marriage is something that really is a benefit to every single society and every single culture. You know, in Romans chapter 2, when Paul writes about Gentiles who do not have the law, instinctively practicing the law, it's interesting. The majority of nations on earth are not Christian nations. They don't have the law of God. They don't have a Judeo-Christian worldview. But what do they all recognize? They all recognize marriage. And the, even if they have perverted, okay, even if they have perverted God's original intention for marriage, perhaps they um, don't hold it as highly or in as much regard as God would, 
or they allow some other type of marriage that's inappropriate, such as polygamy, they still value marriage. And so Gentiles, unbelievers, instinctively recognize that marriage is good for society. And God established this ordinance of marriage to be good for all of society, not just for believers. In fact, when Adam and Eve were around, there was no Israel. There was no church. This was what the human race was supposed to do. You get married, a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And marriage establishes limits on who you procreate with. You don't procreate with the neighbor lady. You don't procreate with your daughter. You don't procreate with anyone other than your spouse, your God-given spouse. That is who you procreate with and fulfill God's command with. So the limit on procreation is not how many children you have. The limit on procreation is who you have them with, right? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we see this, that two become one flesh. I just quoted it to you, but I'll read it again. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and they become one flesh. And so the maximum number of people who constitute a marriage is two. There is one man and one woman. That's it. That's the maximum number of people who can be married to one another. And the word that we use to describe these two individuals, one man and one woman who come together and form this relationship, the word we use to describe that is monogamy. And the definition of monogamy is this. It is being married to one person at a time. It includes the idea of sexual, emotional, and spiritual loyalty with that individual. Let me say that again. Monogamy implies that you are going to be sexually, emotionally, and spiritually loyal to the person to whom you are married. And I have to say that this uh, idea, the concept of monogamy, is under severe attack in our culture. It's under severe attack. And it's really been under attack for a number of years, but I think you are seeing the, the results of 40 to 50 years of teaching regarding the unimportance of marriage. Let's just put it that way. Marriage is unimportant for fulfillment. Marriage is unimportant for society. Marriage is unimportant. You're seeing the fruit of that in how people jump from relationship to relationship to relationship, and they are just hurt and broken, and they're worn out, and they're tired. And, and they're like, how come I can't find any satisfaction? I'm doing what the world tells me to do. I'm doing what secular society says to do. I am, I am satisfying all of my sexual desires. I am satisfying all of my own personal wants. I'm doing whatever makes me feel good. I'm living my own truth, and yet I'm unsatisfied. Why is that? Because God has put it into the heart of man to inherently desire marriage. Marriage provides stability. 
marriage provides security. Marriage provides um, a long-term commitment. Marriage is very good for society overall. And yet we have attacked marriage. We have degraded marriage. We have kind of poo-pooed marriage. I think it's very important to consider God wanted marriage to exist so that you would procreate with one person and then you would create a family with that one person. The resulting responsibility that you would feel towards your spouse and your children, the resulting efforts that you would have to put into providing for them would create stability and certainty that undergirded society. It's true. Marriage is a foundation for society. Marriage is the primary way in which you pass down your values and your ideals to a new generation. And so without marriage, who trains the children? Who passes down the ideals? In the United States, the government has decided it's their responsibility to do that with the public education system. And that's a whole other topic. Okay, so I'm not really going to get into that right now. But you need to think about this. Not only does marriage limit who you procreate with, but it also establishes those family boundaries that are beneficial for society as a whole. All right, so we are going to stop right here. I have a lot more to say about the ordinance of marriage and procreation. I'm going to pick that up uh, on the next episode. So Lord willing, we'll see you back here next week around the same time. God bless. Have a happy Thanksgiving. May you be grateful for all that God has given you, whether it's a lot or a little. May God be praised.